think one of the biggest keys is to slow down. Presence is probably the biggest element, right? So I talked about that ski slope and um, the paths we take down. The challenge is, is when we are rushed or when we're stressed or even in an environment where we feel very uncertain, our brain wants to make as efficient decisions as possible. So it will revert to the fastest route down the hill. And when we do that, what our brain is telling us is there's nothing else to see here. And so really there is so much more than our minds are possibly able to receive through stimuli at any given time. There's so much that it shuts out a huge amount that we could be observing. And I think that in our day-to-day life, we really are in such autopilot that to slow down, to be present, to be more observant is the first step and really the critical step to having a wonder mindset. I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you? Got you? Hey guys, it's Sean, and today on the podcast, I sit down with a world-renowned speaker, writer, and authority on the future of work, and that's Monica Parker. Now, Monica has spent decades helping people discover how to lead and live wonderfully. Now, she's the founder of the global human analytics and change consultancy, Hatch. Now, she has clients that include companies like LinkedIn, Google, Prudential, Lego, and many more, and she helps them advocate for more meaningful work lives. Now, in addition to her work there, she has done some incredible things as well, being an opera singer, a museum exhibition designer, a policy director, a chamber of commerce CEO, a homicide investigator defending death row inmates, and the author of the new book, The Power of Wonder. I mean, wonder is this crazy thing, right? Like, we've all felt wonder, yet the why and the how of this profoundly beneficial emotion is only just beginning to be scientifically defined and explored. And her book explores that. And she really brings to light the power of wonder to transform the way we learn, develop new ideas, drive social change, and ultimately become better human beings. So this is a really fun, wide-ranging conversation into the power of wonder with Monica Parker. Please enjoy, guys. Hey guys, it's Sean, and for the last 15 years, I've been working at the intersection of elite performance, entrepreneurship, and personal development. Now, as a success coach, former professional athlete, entrepreneur, and podcast host, my mission has been helping people discover their untapped potential and live their best life. Now, after being an advisor to Inc.'s fastest-growing companies, interviewing billionaire business titans, and personally coaching CEOs and executives, I've put together the most impactful tools and exercise into my online personal growth course called You Unleashed. Now, if you've been looking to get access to a course that's going to help you expand your potential to help you overcome your obstacles, cultivate your passion, and create your purpose, then head to What Got You There dot com forward slash you dash unleashed. That's what got you there dot com forward slash you dash unleashed or click the link below to check out my online personal growth course called you unleashed. Monica, welcome to what got you there. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to dive into to you and your work, but I would love to start around how many different things you've done. I mean, you've been an opera singer, museum exhibition designer, chamber of commerce CEO, homicide investigator defending death row inmates, you've been author, you're the founder of Hatch. 
What have you been able to to do or a mindset that you've had that has allowed you to find success across vastly different domains? Well, I think part of it, um, it's quite funny, actually. I, I think maybe it's my superpower and I didn't even realize it. Um, I'm 50 and I was just diagnosed with ADD. So I think some of this <laughs> is that I'm just always going down rabbit holes yeah. um, and I get bored really quickly, which is one of the great things about being a consultant. Now I discovered that that's a way for me to sort of scratch the itch, but I just become interested in things and then really want to explore them very deeply. So maybe that's one of the secrets to my success is that I am just genuinely deeply curious. And when I engage in something, then it's with my whole being. So, you know, I've just had the opportunity to, to move around a lot and to be trusted in these roles. Um, I, I, I want to say I'm not sort of I don't want people to think I'm a dilettante because um, certainly something as serious as like being a homicide investigator. I, I really took that role very seriously. Um, but it's just I, I love the opportunity to stretch myself and to be able to um, put myself in new environments where I can benefit that environment and vice versa. Wow, there's so many different places I want to go right now. But but one of the things that that you mentioned there is kind of you're open to a lot of different things. So I'm wondering how you balance and toggle between the the exploration versus exploitation, like exploring a lot of different mm -hmm. subjects. And how do you know when to go super deep? Yeah, I'm not always great about that. I would say that um, probably there's a practicality. I think it helps being a business owner and that you know how you learn how to um, balance your time. Um, but I've also had really, you know, great bosses that have helped guide me to say, you know, this is, this should, this is not your priority anymore. Um, but I think I, I'm probably to be fair, not great. I probably, um, am to lean probably more heavily on the exploration than the exploitation, um, because that's what I enjoy. Hmm. So even just, you know, in the book writing that was the stuff that was fun to me and now the selling is less fun yeah, I, I, so uh <laughs> except i get to talk to cool people like you sean but um so i think that uh the exploration to me is what drives me and the exploitation is the is the necessity interesting i love that something you said a minute ago is when you get into something you're really behind it with your whole being just dive further into that i, I want to know what that means for you yeah i think that um for starters, I, I've been quite peripatetic. I've lived in a lot of different places. So when I move to a place, I want to experience it and to um, try to get a role that allows me to, to be a part of that community. Um, I also, I just don't know how, it, for me, I don't know how to not do it being my whole being. Because if I feel that I my priorities are split, um, then I really struggle um, to know where where I should be focusing. And I guess that's a little bit of that exploration, exploitation trade-off as well. Um, so for me, it's almost, I don't even know how I would do it any other way. Um, otherwise, I think also I would feel very inauthentic. And I think that I would feel that I would feel very inauthentic. And I think I would feel that other people would observe it that way as mm -hmm. well. And so perhaps it's just my um, my desire for people also to observe me as being all in. Hmm. Speaking of authenticity and just understanding a bit more about yourself, what have you done over the years that you think helped cultivate and develop this level of self-awareness that you have? I don't, 
to be honest, and I appreciate that I think there's a compliment in there. I don't know that I'm actually very self-aware. Um, <laughs> um, I think that I'm still on that journey. Um, but I think that maybe it's a bit of mirroring what I want. It's a little bit of the golden rule. You know, you, you, you put out what you want back in. And the one thing that I would want more than anyone, you know, beyond even just being kind is for them to just be themselves. Um, maybe some of it is the science as well that through my history and my research, I have I know that authenticity is one of the things that brings people the greatest subjective well-being, being able to just be themselves. And perhaps there's a little bit of that acknowledgement of the research and the data that says this will will bring us a greater degree of well-being. And then just also my desire that if I put that out, then I will receive it back. Mm. Speaking of well-being, I know this is something you've explored a lot. I would love to know what you found that most people get wrong around happiness. Oh, goodness. So I think that for starters, even just seeking happiness is a goal, right? So the entire self-help movement, I think abundance theory, a lot of this is about happiness, happiness, happiness. And I, I, I joke that happiness has really good PR. And even recently, the headlines have been all over the place that Finland is the happiest country again. And I sort of say, so what? I mean, really, it's not that they're the happiest, they're the best at being not unhappy, um, which is not in my mind the same thing. Um, and also is that simply because the, the emotional spectrum is narrower, therefore they're less happy and they're less unhappy. I, I don't know. Um, but to me, happiness is a little bit of like a, an, an emotional fool's gold because what we're seeking is, um, is something that is very difficult to attain. Why? Because we miswant so many things that we think will make us happy. And this is a, um, a psychological phenomenon called affective forecasting. And we frequently think something will make us happier when it doesn't. The other challenge is that we typically chase consumerist elements in order to make us happy. So we think it's a it, it's a eudaimonic happiness, but it's actually hedonic. So even saying, well, I want to take this course, it'll make me happier. I want to eat a you know a good smoothie, even if it feels like there's a well-being element. We tend to, especially in uh, in the U.S. and in the Western world, fall into this um, this trap of seeing consumerism and happiness you know, bound up together. And we see that in so many commercials, everybody's happy. So one of the things that I try to express is I want people to instead, well, for starters, to broaden their emotional vocabulary and to find more positive words other than just happy. Monica, one of the things you hit on there was the the eudaimonic happiness. And I would love for you to expand on what exactly that is and maybe why that might be a, a better thing to think about in terms of encapsulating overall well-being. Yeah, absolutely. So when happiness was first um, considered, even the root of the word happiness, hap, is luck. And so it was thought that to be happy was just lucky. The gods just blessed you. And there was no, um, no way that we could actually seek happiness. It just happened to us or not. That's where happenstance comes from, right? Um, and so uh, Socrates was the first person to say, no, I believe that happiness can actually be achieved. And so from Socrates, different people started developing different ideas of happiness. And there became two competing notions of happiness, eudaimonic happiness, which is probably closest to what we would call well-being, um, flourishing. And then there is 
hedonic happiness, which is the stuff that we would think of like, you know, what's wine, women and song, things that are, you know, that that are um, that we can purchase or that we can hold that make us feel happier. And of course, there's some overlap there. They're not always discreet. But eudaimonic happiness is the kind of happiness that um, that gives us a greater degree of subjective well-being, whereas hedonic happiness, we get on what's known as a hedonic treadmill. And so we end up running on a treadmill seeking happiness. But after we have that hedonic hit, we end up coming back to what's known as our hedonic happiness baseline. And so basically based on our personality, by the time we're 25, we have a baseline of hedonic happiness that we'll always um, default back to after that little pop of, oh, I bought shoes that made me feel better. But eudaimonic happiness, we can always be seeking, growing, increasing our connection to. Hey guys, it's Sean, and we are about to dive right back into this episode, but before we do, I wanted to take less than a minute to tell you about my online personal development course called You Unleashed. Now, over the years, I've personally coached CEOs, executives, and professional athletes, and I've interviewed over 300 of the world's most successful people on this podcast, and my course, You Unleashed, compiles the most important routines, mindsets, and skills that you need to skyrocket the success in your own life. Now, you will learn these things over 19 video lectures that I'm going to teach you in this course, and you can find out more about the course by heading to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed, or you can click the link below. Now, that's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. So would you say that's the, the better path to follow, or is there a better path? Certainly a yeah, it's definitely a better path. And I would say that there's even now um, there's ideas around happiness called um, a psychological richness. So there's a new term that takes that idea of eudaimonic happiness, but says that it includes elements of things that that add to the richness of our life. So the opportunity, say, to go to university or to travel. So there are elements that are aligned with eudaimonic happiness, but then add another layer. So this is some interesting work done by um, a researcher, Oishi, who um, uh, found that psycho that psychological richness is actually probably the even supersedes um, or is, is greater than eudaimonic happiness for helping people find that subjective well-being. One of the things you were saying along that is having more emotional richness, I think, or, or a better vocabulary around different emotions. Mm. So how do you how do you explore that? What, what, what have you done to explore the emotions and, and to put better verbiage around the emotions you experience? Well, it's interesting because I'm a word nerd, like I love <laughs> words. And so um, it's helpful for me in the sense I love learning the etymology of words and understanding the roots. And so to some degree, uh, just the fact that I love language has helped me with that. But there is so much research around, it's, it's a term known as emodiversity. So if we have a great deal of emodiversity, then um, it's more helpful for us to manage our emotions. It's actually very beneficial from a, a stress regulation point of view, helps us be more resilient because we're able to identify uh, a broader degree of words that that support the emotion that we're feeling. So really a great way to do that. I mean, Brene Brown just wrote a book called Atlas of the Heart. Um, a lot of that, has, she she goes through a, a, a series of different emotions and describes them. Um, I, you know, I would encourage people to just even Google search to say, what is this feeling? And try to find different words and start using them. And I think we would really benefit our children 
rather than just saying, are you happy or sad, which I find is kind of puerile, to start using language that is richer, you know, so that they start to appreciate mixed emotions, because there's incredible power, Sean, in mixed emotions. Mixed emotions really give us so much more benefit than emotions that sit on either pole, than the happy or sad. Uh, recognizing the two emotional contexts can be occurring at the same time um, really helps us metabolize difficult times. It helps us recover from trauma. I mean, there's research that shows that widows and widowers, if they reflect on their partner, um, remembering both the positive and the negative attributes, they will recover from grief more effectively. And so being able to hold those two ideas in our head at the same time is very, very powerful. And I, I would love to see us start training our children to have that level of nuance and complexity in their emotional thought. Yeah, I completely agree. And we, we had a recent guest on Denise Scholl. If you're familiar with the show uh, Billions on Showtime, uh, the character mm. Wendy is based on Denise. And that's one of the first things she does with clients to help them make better decisions and understand is really go further in the emotions they experience and really get better words behind each one of those. Um, so I think that's a point a lot of people are going to really be taking note on. I would love to know though, Monica, why did you become interested in all this? What, what led to you becoming so interested in going down these rabbit holes? Well, I think the wonder rabbit hole is, is really fascinating. To be fair, I set out to write a book about change management, which in re retrospect would have been really freaking boring. So I'm glad that I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> but when I look back at my history, I started to try to understand my entire, I think my entire professional history has been trying to help people manage big change, mm -hmm. existential. So people on death row, or I worked with um, parents with children with disabilities, you know, that's a big change to their expectation or working with pe people who lose their jobs. You know, that is one of the someone's ego. So understanding how are people, some people so buoyant and able to withstand those changes and why do some people are not able to make it through? And what I found, I didn't have the language for it at the time, but what I recognized was that people who held their world in a great deal of wonder were better able to manage the slings and arrows of their life. And so that really is what got me interested in wonder. And that just took me down a rabbit hole of almost four years now of, of researching that specifically. But I see the red line now through the last 20 years of my professional life of saying, yes, you know, it, people who held their world with a sense of wonder were better able to deal with what the world threw at them. How do you define wonder? So wonder is really interesting. It's a bit of a shapeshifter from a language point of view. We have to wonder, which is the verb, but then we have a wonder, which is the noun. So to wonder being more like curiosity, and then a wonder would be something that we experience that maybe gives us awe. So I really wanted to try to link those two concepts. So the way that I describe wonder is it is an emotional experience that starts with openness to experience, which is a, a one of our personality traits, then moves into curiosity, then into absorption, and then finally into awe. And what I like about this description is it's almost cyclical, so that it becomes this upwardly cyclical additive process that allows us to continually um, grow in our, our wonder mindset. So if we experience more awe, then we are more open. If we're more open, then we're more curious, and it just gets bigger and bigger. One of the things I like to, um, that, that I, I want to point out also is when I talk about openness to experience, it's really about openness to people and to new ideas. Mm. It's not just about, you know, going on a, a new path, which can help, 
Um, but being open to new ideas is really uh, the key starting point uh, for wonder. One of the things you said when you mentioned openness in the beginning was around personality traits. So wh- where does this fall on the scale? How much of this is DNA we're born with in terms of being open? And how much of this is something we can cultivate? Yeah, so I would say that about 50% of our personality we are born with. And then another 50% we develop over the course of our life up to about the age of 25. Um, One of the best ways that I know to describe it is a a gentleman named Alvaro Pasquilioni, who is the person who developed the term neuroplasticity. And he describes our brain as a ski slope. So he says that the bit that we get from our genetics is the is are the contours of the root. And then the bit that we develop over the course of our life are the, the roots we take down, right? The paths that we take. And those create neural pathways that then became ruts that actually contribute to our personality. And so those two factors then, by the time we're about 25, we really are pretty well baked. It's not to say we can't change our personality at all, there are a lot of debate about the degree to which you should change your personality, but it is set by the time we're 25. And so what I try to tell people is, let's not try to change our personality. Let's simply recognize what it is. Everyone has some degree of openness to experience, right? There's some element of um, no one is devoid of it. So just recognize where you sit on that spectrum and then try to mitigate it um, or enhance it in ways, in other ways. Any other ways that that you've seen people just get more in tuned with being able to experience wonder? Really, I think one of the biggest keys is to slow down. Presence Mm. is probably the biggest element, right? So I talked about that ski slope and um, the paths we take down. The challenge is, is when we are rushed or when we're stressed or even in an environment where we feel very uncertain, our brain wants to make as efficient decisions as possible. So it will revert to the fastest route down the hill. And when we do that, what our brain is telling us is there's nothing else to see here. And so really there is so much more than our minds are possibly able to receive through stimuli at any given time. There's so much that it shuts out a huge amount that we could be observing. And I think that in our day-to-day life, we really are in such autopilot that to slow down, to be present, to be more observant is the first step and really the critical step to having a wonder mindset. I know you work with a lot of people in organizations who are experiencing this, right? Like they're feeling stressed, they're rushed, and it's an uncertain environment. So how do you then get them even open to the idea of, you know what? Let's slow down here for a second. Let's get present, right? Because all of those thoughts are ruminating. And I found so many people just continue down that downward spiral and they never even pause to be able to step back for a minute. I'm I'm just wondering how you've navigated that with different organizations or people you've worked with. It is not easy. I will tell you the openness is difficult and the curiosity. You would think that that organizations would want to be curious, Mm -hmm. but in fact, they're very eager to come to a decision very quickly. Mm -hmm. So they want you to be curious, but just as long (laughs) until they they over egg the exploitation, right? They want as little exploration for as maximizing of exploitation as possible. So one of the elements is recognizing that there is a recognition in the corporate world, growing recognition, I wouldn't say everyone, that soft skills are important, right? That things like 
Uh, empathy are important. We finally, I think Brene Brown has managed to break through that vulnerability is, is helpful. So I think starting from a point of saying humans matter, um, soft skills matter, and then starting to introduce the each of the pieces separately. I will tell you that going into a corporate and saying, I want to teach you wonder at work definitely gets a little side eye at first until you start to break down those pieces and then they recognize the benefits. Openness to experience is a fascinating personality trait. It is indicative of the most positive uh, elements of, of life outcomes. So people who are higher in openness to experience perform better in work and school. They have more successful marriages. They, it's just, it's really fascinating. So when you start to give people the data, I think that their mind starts to be a little bit more receptive to some of this, but I will not tell you that it's always easy. Sometimes you definitely get a little bit like, okay, crazy lady. But I think that I have uh, developed a level of trust with my clients that now they respect that I am a data-driven consultant and that I wouldn't be bringing them something that wasn't data-driven. Yeah, that's one of the things I appreciate about your book, The Power of Wonder, is you really dive into the science behind so much of this. Um, and then obviously, I love how you, you tie in some great poets and, and mystical thinkers and things like that of the past, um, which is always a, an extreme pleasure of mine and things that I love to read. But I, I really love how you dive into the neuroscience and the science behind that. And I think one of the helpful things is some of those people who are kind of resistant to ideas like this, um, maybe some of the, the leaders of these big organizations. So how can leaders tap into wonder to help their leadership abilities? What, what have you uncovered there about leadership and wonder? It's really incredible. The, the benefits of wonder at work are substantial. So leaders who are higher in these composite elements of wonder um, end up being, they're more empathetic, they're more humble, they are they are better listeners. What we know is people want to work for empathetic bosses. People will take a pay cut to work for a more empathetic company. Empathetic companies perform better. Humble CEOs perform better. They're better at uh, at communication within their teams. They're better at empowering their teams, which in turn means that their managers under them uh, show greater commitment and engagement. And so again, it's about the, the data. It's showing them the evidence that says there is real benefit here to taking the time to understand this emotion, to bring this emotion into the workplace, and then and to see the outcomes. So again, things like uh, compassion, empathy, humility, ethics, authenticity, all of these outcomes of wonder that then benefit the organization. Authenticity, another great one. People who are more authentic in startup pitches perform better than people who are well rehearsed. And so there's so many different little data nuggets that you can use to convince leaders. And it's one of the reasons why I put that in the title of the book. It really is the way to change the way you lead. Mm. We, we recently had on uh, the conscious leadership coach, Diana Chapman, and she had a line that stuck with me. She said, the best version of Diana is the authentic version of Diana. Uh, I think that really just holds true. And, and one of the other things I really enjoyed your research brought up is around resilience and how wonder can help develop resilience. And, and I would love to know what you found with that. It's incredible, actually. Resilience is one of the, the greatest benefits of wonder. I loved a piece of research that I found about people who had experienced PTSD and the benefit of rerouting neural pathways from experiencing a moment of wonder. Um, we also, what, what they found was that 
They took people, uh, veterans who had PTSD on a route, uh, on a whitewater rafting trip. And at the end of that whitewater rafting trip, what they found was that they had fewer PTSD symptoms. And that was something, a benefit that they had for many weeks after. But what's really interesting was they wanted to compare whitewater rafting wonder to just day-to-day wonder, so quotidian wonder. And what they found was that when they primed people to find wonder and asked them to find wonder in their day-to-day life, that also offered almost the same level of benefits. And so one of the things that I try to, uh, to, to deliver, one of the messages I try to deliver is that wonder is not about a moment, it's about a mindset. And so we really can create a mindset that helps us see wonder all the time. Another element of resiliency, which was really fascinating was on curiosity, that curiosity now that people believe that that may be one of the keys that is the difference between having post-traumatic stress as opposed to post-traumatic growth. So being genuinely curious about your trauma actually helps you move through your trauma. Mm -hmm. And so that is another element of how wonder can help with resilience. One of the things you said a second ago is, is they primed them to be able to experience wonder. What, what is that process of priming to be able to be more open to wonder look like? It's really simple. It's simply saying to your brain, we will find this today. So it's it can be as simple as a single line prime. There was a piece of research done on wonder walks where researchers sent people on a walk. They sent two groups of people on a walk. One group, just take a 20 minute walk in nature. Another group, they said, you will look for things that give you a sense of wonder on this walk. And then they went on the walk. The people who were primed with just that one sentence prime had substantially more benefits. The reason was because the people that went on the regular walk started ruminating, getting caught up in their day-to-day thinking, whereas the people who went on the wonder walk were actually observing the walk that they were going on. They were present as opposed to in their heads. And so priming is a really powerful element. And people who think things like manifesting is a little bit too woo, really the heart of manifesting is about priming. Why does priming work? Because when we tell our brain that there is a benefit at the end of something, it will invest cognitive energy into finding it. And so it's really just saying to our brain, brain, like a little dog, you know, go find this. And then the brain does what it, you know, what it's been told. So it seeks that out. And so priming is a really powerful way to connect to wonder and really to help you achieve just about anything that you want to just start your day and say, I'm going to find three things to feel wondrous about today. And you will. Were you saying that we essentially usually seek out those those huge, massive spikes of wonder, like those transcendent type moments. And were you saying that our brain actually kind of lights up similarly to these smaller amounts of wonder? Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. So when the idea of of wonder and awe first started being researched, and we can even go back to Maslow and Maslow's idea of peak experience. When he talks about peak experience, it's really a similar self-transcendent experience to wonder. Maslow thought that peak experiences would be fleeting and rare. The original people who started researching awe, so Keltner and Haight, also said believed that it would be fleeting and rare. But now, as research has continued, there is so much more evidence that says that it is not rare and fleeting. Rather, it is something that we can find in the quotidian. We can find every day. And that every day is just as powerful as the big ones, the, hmm. the big whammies. 
How, how do you think about the balance between the positive, these type of experiences, but also the yin and yang of life where you also have, have to have the negatives? What, what have you uncovered about that? That's where I think wonder is the most positive because we can feel wonder even in horror. There is a tinge of wonder in horrific experiences. We can think of COVID while we're watching you know, excess news of excess deaths. I mean, even that expression is just horrific. And then you see the people who are helping and that gives you a sense of wonder, of awe. And so I think that one of the powers of wonder is that it is embracing of both the negative and the positive. It does take in the yin and the yang. And we can see that what's very interesting is that the Western philosophy doesn't really like the negative. It sees the negative as something that we just have to move through. So if we even look at the word awe, the word awe has now been co-opted for awesome. Everything's awesome. But of course, awe is also the root of awful. And so if we look at the Western term of of awe and awesome, it has become fully positive. But if you look at the language for the same term of awe or in wonder in languages in the East or in the global South, you see that they still have very much that tinge of fear and trembling. And I think it's to our detriment that we lose that sense of fear and trembling because that is the power that exists in wonder in and in awe. It's the combination of the positive and the negative and that the two exist together. And that coexistence in that is our ability to feel resilient resilience in that is our ability to move through difficult times. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, of modern difficult times, one of the things that I feel like consumes me a lot is just the thinking of our habituation process around like endless scrolling. And it's kind of one of those things that in the back of my mind, I'm always kind of like with, with young kids, I'm thinking about constantly. And I, I would love to just know what you uncovered in your research and things that maybe we can do to help, I don't know, influence more productive activities. I would just love to hear your thoughts overall on this. I will say that I am really bad at this. I love my phone, but I also recognize that the folks that run all of these social networks, they know exactly what they're doing and they are just driving us for the next dopamine hit, the next dopamine hit. And this is one of the things, if you've ever doom scrolled until 3 a.m., you know that there it's not positive. What it is, is it's just driving this negative curiosity. And in fact, they know that that negative news gets more clicks. And so our brains become habituated to look for surface curiosity, not deep curiosity, but just surface little hits of that, again, going back to the exploration exploitation. So just the tiniest little bit of exploration, then you know, a much broader bit of exploitation, which is we are being exploited by these uh, these social networks. So really the biggest thing is just to put it down, which I know is not easy. And it's one of those things, I heard someone say something the other day about addiction, that it's not easy, but it's simple. I think that this is what it is. We are all mildly addicted. And while it's not easy, it is simple. We just have to do less of it. Dive further there on the different curiosities. You said surface level and deep curiosity. What are those? So curiosity is interesting. There are several different theories of curiosity going back, you know, 50, 70 years. Generally, most of them are at least two factor and they go up to five factor. 
But there is a recognition that are usually at least two different kinds of curiosity. There's the kind of curiosity that is like the Google search to settle a bet. It's the smelling the milk to know if it's gone off. It's sort of when a dog is sniffing around to say, oh, is there some food around here? So that's one kind of curiosity. And then there's the curiosity that is the enjoyment of the process of learning. And so those two are really quite different. The kind of curiosity that gets us closer to wonder is that second kind. It's the kind that is the deep curiosity, what some people call epistemic curiosity. I really just try to call them surface and deep so that I'm aggregating a lot of the different theories around the curiosity research to just say surface curiosity, nothing wrong with it, but it's not going to really get you closer to wonder. But the deep curiosity, the enjoyment of knowledge, of, of intellectual exploration, of just enjoying expanding your brain, that is the bit that gets us closer to wonder. So how can we tap into this with our education and school system and, and to get people more into this state for more effective learning? Unfortunately, our education system really, I think, in many environments just kills wonder. Maybe when they're, they're little, little kids, they're allowed wonder. And then when you get into higher education in good university programs, and then maybe even in master's and, and PhD programs where you're allowed that exploration. But certainly in middle and high school, it's always about these standardized tests and about finding the single right answer. And one of my challenges is when we only seek the single right answer and we are rewarded on that when children are rewarded of this is the answer and when you have it then you've succeeded then what ends up happening is first we create a sense of competition who's going to find the single right answer first and who got the most single right answers but also once you get it then you stop looking and so what that ends up doing is creating people who have what's known as low need for cognition and high need for cognitive closure these are two elements of our personality but they're not set like the rest of our personality traits. So they can be influenced quite a great degree. And of course, openness to experience can be influenced in children up until the age of 25. And so when we have school systems that really force standardization over exploration, what you end up getting are children and then adults who believe that there's a single right answer to everything and nuance and gray areas and discussion go out the window. And I believe, honestly, that's one of the reasons why we live in such a polarized world, because there are so many people that believe that they have the answer and they don't want to look anymore. And that is to our, our world's detriment. Have you come across anything it could be in schools or within organizations where they they tap more into this that there's not one single right answer there's not black and white how do we learn to live and enjoy the gray how do we search that out i think montessori is a great example of that of course montessori tends to end at a certain you know a young age i think that there are examples of new schools that are exploring that. Unfortunately, a lot of them are private. And so it seems like some of this ability to expand our mind ends up being something for the privileged few, which really is disappointing, but unfortunately seems to be the, the fact. So what I would encourage parents then is it becomes their need to help their kids expand their mind and their thinking and their exploration when they come home. Yeah. So anything that you can do to minimize the homework, anything that you can do to unplug them and get them outside or get them into museums or get them into environments, art environments where they are simply allowed to explore, that exploration is so important. And even just having conversations at the dinner table that say, okay, well, you were taught this, but what about this? Yeah. 
And then having that discussion, having real conversations with our children about meaningful things and helping them again understand that there can be two ideas that seem opposite that can both be true at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, so much of that learning takes place outside the classroom. But Monica, I'm actually really curious about your learning, just your ability to conquer multiple domains, your ability to understand and synthesize so much in vast, broad knowledge. What have you done over the years that you think has really just helped your ability to learn and absorb some of this information, even your recall on, on, on during our conversation here? I will say that I really do credit. I'm very fortunate. My parents sent me to great schools. We also, I grew up in a home where we did debate. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a home where uh, we explored the arts, where we traveled. So I was very privileged, but I think that the privilege that I had, there are still ways that you can do that outside of the context of having money. But certainly my education and the way that I was brought up, we what we valued in our home was learning and what we valued was sharing what we learned with each other. I mean, I'll use a simple example when we would go on trips and this is something that doesn't cost anything. My brother and I would become the tour guides. Hmm. So, and this was pre Google. So we were searching in newspapers and in libraries, we would become the tour guide for wherever we were going. And each of us would have a day where we planned it and had to tell everything about where we were going and why and the history behind it. That empowerment to mm. children to say your learning benefits the group is really powerful because then you start to think, oh, it's cool to learn and it's cool to share what I learned with other people. So I think that that's probably part of it. And I'm just a nerd. I mean, I think some of it's just the way I'm wired. Um, my, my parents are nerds. I, I joke that we come, we are not a sporting breed. <laughs> we definitely, you know, are not sporty people. We're people who enjoyed intellectual pursuits and sharing them with each other. And so that I think has just been fundamental to, to who I am. One of the things though, I think you mentioned not a sporting breed, We've, we've had on multiple Olympic gold medalists, professional athletes, Hall of Famers, and things like that. And one of the things that's eminent in all of them is this deep-seated curiosity, their exploration into, into getting better, to learning more. What are the greats doing? What can I do better? Um, so I think there's so many of these commonalities and these principles that you see throughout um, and just that, that wonder mindset that it seems like they all have as well. One of the things you were talking about earlier within the wonder mindset is just absorption. And I want to know how absorption, how does that relate to flow states? When, when, mm. when you when time's escaping you, when you're just fully in the present moment, ha, how are those the same, similar, different? How is absorption and flow state? Ha, how are they similar? Absorption is, is one of the tougher elements of the wonder cycle for people to grasp onto. And I think flow is probably the easiest piece because most people understand the concept of flow, of losing oneself in an activity. So the flow is losing yourself in an activity that is easy enough that it's it's a flows from you but not but hard enough that you're intellectually challenged okay. so if it's too easy you'll bail and if it's too hard you're bail you'll bail so it needs to be right in that narrow lane of what you're good at what happens in a flow state is you you lose all concept of your environment you forget time you lose time time becomes very fluid and time is very fluid in wonder as well so this is why it's one of those elements and you even forget your own human needs. You forget to, to, to sleep, to eat. Flow is very aligned with the kind of absorption that leads to awe. Mm. The key to absorption, I see absorption as the runway before we take flight. 
So this is where we have explored and had all these ideas and all this knowledge. And then we're going down a rabbit hole and then it becomes narrower and narrower and narrower. That's why I call it whittle. So this is where we start to put some blinkers on so that our brain can really focus. There's a great expression about narrowing the the mind, the the intellectual diameter of a problem. This was an expression by Lloyd Trefethen, which I think is fascinating. So we we narrow the intellectual diameter of what it is that we're exploring. And then in that, in that narrowness, we have the opportunity to have what I describe as compression and release. We have the opportunity to have a expectation violation that then blows our minds. So when we are in that narrow state, we are prepared then for something that is so different from that narrow state that we're in that we have the aha moment. And I have done a lot of research also on sort of those eureka moments. I wasn't able to put all of that into the book, but what I found is that it's that differential. Our brains only notice what changes. And so we really need to have that narrowness so that then we notice the change. And when we have that change and it's big enough, then we get into the two phases of awe, which is the vastness and accommodation. How does this relate to having memories and richer memories? I just think about certain times when, when the context changes, whether I'm on vacation or a different type of experience, I feel like my memories tend to be richer. Is, is mm. that something you found in this? So that's less about absorption, but certainly about novelty. And okay. so our brains notice newness. That's the thing. If it's not new, we forget it. And this can be so many things. Think about when just when you put your the, your clothes on, you feel them at first and then you stop feeling them, right? If we were to actually notice everything that happened all the time, it would make us insane. Yeah. And in fact, there are types of, there are certain people who are not able to block out everything that's happening. And it is in fact becomes a mental illness for them. There are other people who are able to shut out too much and then they're, they don't notice anything. So it's really that, that having that, that balance between the two, but we notice newness. And so whenever we engage in novelty, whether it's a uh, a, a trip, whether it's even a new route to work, that really shakes our brain up. And so our brain is saying, pay attention, because it hasn't seen this before. And that's why those memories become more acute. Also, if you're genuinely curious about something, your brain will embed that in the hippocampus more effectively. So if it's something that you're really curious about, and then you learn it. So if you're really excited, you've done lots of research about this trip, and then you, you know, you've been thinking about going to the pyramids and always wanted to see it, and then you're there, it's really going to become embedded into your long term memory. Monica, when you're really curious about a topic, what did the next minutes, days, weeks look like for you? I'm, I'm, I'm truly like interested in what your personal practice is like because of how many rabbit holes you've been able to explore super deep. I will tell you that the internet when used appropriately is freaking amazing. I will also tell you that Google Scholar is your friend. So I will start with a Google search, then I will almost immediately start going to the research. So then I'll get into Google Scholar, which if those are not familiar with it, it's a, a different type of Google search. You can just look up Google Scholar and you can even put a little widget in your uh, search bar. And then you're searching just academic papers. I will tell you that academic papers are very expensive, and I am not ashamed to say that there is something called Sci-Hub where uh, you are able to get academic papers for free. I think the fact that academic papers are 
are as expensive as they are is really gatekeeping yeah. and none of that money goes to the researchers it just goes to these publishers so uh, the opportunity then really it starts with a google search then it goes to google scholar then to sci-hub and then reading the books from these people and i do love to read i'm a voracious reader and a lot of tabbing those and then drawing it all together Speaking of books, I'm assuming in 30 years, you're hoping someone's on a, on a podcast interview and it's like, you know what, this book, The Power of Wonder by Monica Parker was hugely influential for me. Are there any of those books that you look back and you're like, you know what, that had a profound impact on me that still kind of resonates deeply with me? Anything like that come to mind for you? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe one of the people that I love is Dan Pink. And I was really honored that he wrote a, a blurb for me. I think that he why I find him fascinating is he's not a scientist, but he's such a great aggregator. And that was one of the oddest and yet greatest compliments I've ever been given, which is someone said that I was a great aggregator. And I think that there's one thing to understand the knowledge. It's another thing to be able to aggregate it and then share it with someone else. And to me, uh, To Sell as Human was probably one of the first books that I read that had all of these different scientific elements and then presented them in a way that was so practical. And I, to me, that's one of the the great books that I love. But also another book that truly changed my life was Nickel and Dime by Barbara Einrich, which I was reading at the same time that I was a homicide investigator. And that was what blew my mind about the concept of meritocracy. It made me realize that, in fact, we do not live in a fair world and that there are just certain people that are born luckier because of the just the very fact of of to whom they were born to. And I grew up, my father was very poor. He worked very hard to become a brain surgeon and become wealthy. So we were always taught that if you just work hard enough, you can get there. But the reality is that's just not true. And I saw that from Nickel and Dimed. And that literally was an awe moment for me. That changed my entire perspective on the world. Hmm. I, I've never read Nickel and Dime. I'll have to check that out. Dan Pink, a huge fan of him. We, we had him on. Uh, you guys can check in the show notes. He, episode 100-something. Dan Pink's just, I, I love him. He's incredible. But Monica, one of the things that really stood out to me, uh, one of the lines in your book, you said, if there's anything you can take from this book, it is that there is more. And believe me, mm. I, I, I ended up underlining probably the next three pages in, in beautiful writing and incredible insights you had. But what do you mean by that? There is more. I sort of held my opinion and I guess uh, any any hint of woo until the very end. And then my commitment was the last chapter, I wouldn't put any research, it would just be my thoughts. Mm. So my belief is that there is more. And the way that I describe it is when, before we had the telescope, our concept of the cosmos was really just faith, right? It was faith and some science, a little bit of math, but it was just a, a belief that there was more. And then we had the telescope and we could prove it. And the microscope, we never knew that quantum dance that existed until we had the microscope. It was a matter of faith. And then we knew it was there. So to me, there are elements of wonder. I discussed psychedelics being one of those. There are moments that we have where we feel that there is something that is beyond our capability of understanding, but we can't quite grapple with it. I live in cities, so I live in London, I've been in New York, and so I live in, in buildings where there are other people right next to me, and you can sort of hear like a voice through the wall. It's discarnate, you don't know who it belongs to, but you know that it's there. 
that to me is what I mean, that there is more. And so whenever we want to narrow our field of vision, whenever we think, oh, I've seen it all, you haven't. And just keep searching, keep looking, keep staying on that journey because in that is the richness. And, and I hope that, you know, maybe wonder is our psychoscope and it will be the mechanism, the vehicle for us to look inside our own psyches someday to understand what is there. Well, I absolutely love that that last chapter, opening up our eyes to some of this exploring, this exploration. I am curious, though, what, what did you uncover in your research that you feel like most fascinated you, that you're still like, this is remarkable? Is there anything that come to mind for you with that? I think some of the research behind psychedelics was really impactful. I had read about some of the the impact, the way that it could benefit people who had existential depression, how it could benefit people with addiction. But I don't think I realized the efficacy. That was incredibly powerful for me and something that really not that I've always had a very liberal sense of drug policy, but really made me recognize how much we lost in the whatever it was, 60 years of prohibition of researching this incredible drug. Now, I'm not saying everybody should just go out and drop acid, but the reality is, is I feel like we lost so much for people who are our most vulnerable, who could be benefit, benefited from it. So I think that that was probably one of the elements that really struck me. And probably the other piece is just how connected all of these pro-social elements of our personality or, or of our behavior are connected, how openness connects to the way that we treat each other, how curiosity then connects to openness. So I think all the connecting points and that web of behaviors and impetus and how they all create just this almost superstructure that we exist within. Is there anything that's changed in your life from writing this book? in terms of how you actually go about your day to day? I have really focused on being more present. I am terrible at, I'm terrible at it. I mean, this is just, I, I try to engage in a meditation practice. I try to put the phone down and this has reminded me, I believe that I was always in a rush because I felt that in that rushing, I, would be able to experience more, right? I'd be able to pack more in my day. And I realized that that's actually counterproductive, that in trying to pack more in my day, what I'm actually doing is missing out on so much because I'm not slowing down enough to see the detail that exists, the richness of detail that exists in my own life. And so I think that this is one of the things it's trying to get me to slow down to not feel that I always have to be in motion and to instead just observe. So Monica, say you were going to slow down and have a super, super deep thought provoking conversation like this with someone dead or alive, who would you love just be able to have a night asking questions of? I have so many. And so it's hard. It's like, I, I'd want to have a banquet. Um, <laughs> but I, I think probably in the context of the research that I've been doing, I think that having a conversation with Maslow would be fascinating, or perhaps Socrates. Mm. Two people who are 
pillars in terms of my bookshelf that that I love exploring, have read so much of the works around them. But Monica, this has been fascinating for me. The books, The Power of Wonder, incredible read, fascinating research and insights. Where else can the listeners stay connecting to you? Obviously, we'll have the book linked up, but anywhere we can direct them. Yeah, so they can find me at monica-parker.com or I'm on social. You can find me on Twitter or on Insta at Monica C. Parker. And I'd love anybody who listened to this to continue the conversation with me on one of those platforms. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.